You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Stephanie Hafley, the Deputy Director of Academic and Student Programs and a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. About a year and a half ago, the Hayek Program started a research project on work independency to explore the notion and philosophy of work and the responsibility and challenges associated with welfare provided by individuals, civil society, and government. To better understand these topics and find ways to encourage and support scholarship in this arena, we wanted to focus on the changing technology, norms, opportunities, and challenges of today and tomorrow. We are honored to be able to partner with the Niskanen Center, particularly Samuel Hammond, the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy, to put on this conference on the future of work. We also hope this is just the beginning of the conversation. Technological innovation is a driving factor of economic growth that both disrupts current practices and creates new opportunities. As a society, we tend to both yearn for and caution against technological change, and economists, policymakers, and the general public have an interest in how technology will impact our society. What is the role of markets, civil society, and government in shaping the future of work and technology? What does social scientific and policy analysis have to say about these changing dynamics, and how do those social scientists and policy analysts interested in promoting an open society seek to understand and suggest democratic solutions to collective challenges that treat citizens as dignified equals? As part of this conference on the future of work, there were four keynote lectures to kick off the discussion. It is my honor to introduce Elizabeth Rhodes. Elizabeth Rhodes is the research director for the Basic Income Project at Y Combinator Research. Prior to joining Y Combinator Research, she completed a, po- a joint PhD in social work and political science at the University of Michigan in 2016, where her research focused on health and education provisions of informal settlements, workforce development, and poverty prevention and alleviation strategies. Her talk today is on a 21st century vision for economic security. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm great. I think one of the the bad things about going last (laughs) is that a lot of very brilliant and better spoken people talked about a lot of things in greater detail um, that I was going to touch on. (laughs) But um, so we'll consider part of my presentation a high level summary of um, some things we've gone through. And then I am going to talk quite a bit about um, our project. So I work for um, Y Combinator Research. And I had not actually heard of it when I saw my job posting uh, three and a half years ago, Um, but Y Combinator is a startup accelerator um, that invests in mentors and trains young companies. YC was launched in March of 2005, and it is consistently ranked as one of the top um, accelerators. The mentorship and training aspect is what really separates it from venture capital. And a lot of Silicon Valley sort of hot companies including Airbnb, Dropbox, Reddit, and Stripe, um, have gone through YC. Um, Although they're often conflated, uh, Y Combinator Research 
or YCR, uh, where I work, is actually a completely separate organization. <laughs> um, we are a nonprofit research lab established in 2015 by Sam Altman, who at that time uh, was the president of Y Combinator. Um, he founded YCR to address problems that startups um, either you know, aren't set up to, can't solve, the incentive structures aren't there, um, and, and types of projects that have a longer time horizon that maybe aren't being tackled in traditional research settings such as academia. Um, as an organization, we seek to consider how technological advances affect social outcomes, um, to think more broadly about how to minimize the negative effects, and to promote a more equitable distribution of the benefits um, across individuals and communities. So it's sort of natural that basic income um, is one of YCR's first projects. And um, an experiment and a call for researchers was announced in early 2016. Now, Sam's um, interest in basic income grew out of his work with Y Combinator, but also out of his work with um, OpenAI, which he founded co-founded around the same time that YCR was founded. Um, it was OpenAI, the goal is to develop um, artificial general intelligence um, in a, with a focus on safety and um, similar to YCR, sort of um, seeing that the benefits are more equitably distributed, more evenly distributed, and that the technology isn't um, necessarily owned by one company. Um, it was founded as a uh, nonprofit, um, but earlier this year they started sort of a separate, the nonprofit still exists, but there is a um, capped profit organization, OpenAI LP, operating alongside of it, fully governed by the nonprofit side. Um, but in order, they learned quickly that in order to compete with Google and other tech giants with this sort of safety and um, more community-driven mission, uh, they needed more money. <laughs> um, so through his work with YC, um, Sam was seeing firsthand how companies are increasingly able to do uh, more with less to shift the production function, um, as we've talked about. But, and through his experience with OpenAI, um, he he's really believes and can envision a future where um, many of the current jobs, or certainly parts of the current jobs, um, can be done um, better and cheaper um, by technology. So the likelihood of, of mass job loss in the future may have spurred um, Sam's interest in basic income. But then he hired me, a poverty researcher, um, who is focused on the shortcomings of the existing social safety net and um, the challenges facing low-wage workers. Um, so we took on a slightly different dimension in some ways. We've sort of combined the, the visions. Um, so I'm going to go through the next slides um, quickly, fairly quickly, because um, we've been talking about these statistics in depth um, throughout most of this conference. So one of the things that we've seen is the benefits of economic growth are increasingly unevenly distributed. Um, I think looking at growth since 1980, you know, the um, GDP has grown at like 154%, incomes of the top 1% have grown at 190%, but the median um, household income has only grown by 16.5%. Income inequality has also um, steadily risen. So this is using data from Piketty and colleagues. Um, they found that, I think it was 2015, I'm not sure the last year in this data set, but the share of total income in the U.S. Um, earned by the top 10% um, exceeded 
you know, the total combined income of the bottom 90%. And I think this paper, as we've talked about a couple times as well, um, but, you know, Raj Chetty and colleagues, um, they found this precipitous decline in intergenerational mobility. Um, in 1940, it was around 90% of children um, ended up earning more than their parents. And for the cohort born in the 1980s, um, that has, you know, dropped um, significantly um, to about only about half of people. And Betsy talked about this yesterday and did point out that slowing GDP growth contributes to this. But we do definitely see um, reduced mobility. So these income and wealth changes are driven in part by the changing nature of jobs in the U.S. So this graph looks at um, job growth, um, percent change in non-farm employment, so payroll employment, um, sent between the 1960s and 2015. And so on average, you know, over the decades, 1960s to the 90s, there was an, on average about a 25% increase in payroll employment per decade. Um, we saw a decrease there during the Great Recession, and then between 2005 and 2015, um, the increase was only 6.5%. And in a, a 2016 paper, um, Larry Katz and Alan Kruger report that um, while during that period from 2005 to 2015, there were um, 9.1 million more people employed, um, there were also 9.4 million more people employed in what they call alternative work arrangements. Um, that could be contractor work, freelance, gig employment. And essentially what they concluded was that that suggests that all, you know, most entirely all new job growth is going to these alternative arrangements. And, and that's not inherently bad. I mean, contract and gig employment can be great. We've talked about it. They allow individuals, you know, can allow individuals more flexibility and autonomy. But they can also create a lot of volatility in income, a lot of uncertainty about future employment. And they frequently lack benefits, um, such as paid um, sick leave and health care. In fact, and this was a, a 2016 report um, by J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, and they had used anonymized data from one million um, Chase customers. Um, they found that more than half of people experience a more than 30% month-to-month change in income. And you know, among individuals in the bottom income quintile, that you know figure is 74%. And volatility is also. Um, quite high among individuals ages 18 to 24, which is something you know we might expect um, given life trajectories at that time. But according to that report, 86% of the um, the month-to-month -month volatility is actually comes from variation in pay within a, a one job, whether it's um, you know pay frequency, like changes in hours, um, you know seasonal bonuses and things like that. Um, about the same over the time period, I think about four in ten people change jobs, and so the you know the change in job accounts for about um, ten or fourteen percent of um, the observed um, volatility. So, amid this um, increasing economic security, um, the existing safety net isn't sufficient. I mean, it's critical, um, and it does decrease poverty um, by about half. I think these um, figures are a couple years ago, but. Um, it decreased poverty from about 26.6% to 14.3%, but that still leaves 14.3% of people in poverty, many of whom are children. 
And you know, the current, you know, the current safety net is a very complex patchwork of programs. Um, many people are categorically ineligible for aid. Um, they're unaware of their eligibility for benefits. Um, take up is low. You know, navigating the bureaucracy is difficult. Um, and many of the programs also have a work disincentives built in. So, um, you know, benefits phase out as income increases, and sometimes that um, phase out is quite you know dramatic. Um, and that earning that extra dollar and losing a benefit that you know is incredibly valuable, maybe a, a childcare voucher, um, doesn't make sense economically. And I thought I understood this complexity, having you know been trained as a social worker, <laughs> but it wasn't until I started working on this project and trying to figure out how you know cash transfers would affect people's existing benefits and you know could we get exemptions. I was working in several states. Um, it is, you know, incredibly difficult to understand and interpret the regulations, even for someone, you know, who's PhD in social work, and and for a lot of the people whose job it is to sort of enforce these regulations. St you know, we, we go to, you know, high level at, you know, departments of health and human services, and they say, I don't know, like maybe figure out a way. If you can find a loophole, then you know, okay. I mean, it's just really, really complicated. We actually had to pass a law or help. I didn't pass it, but we got help passing a law in one state um, to protect people's benefits um, so they didn't lose them. We'll talk about more about that. So many of these trends, sort of the growth of alternative work arrangements, increasing volatility, um, and as Betsy highlighted yesterday, um, the shift in employment from like manufacturing and um, goods producing sectors to the service sector um, aren't categorically like detrimental or bad. You know, a lot of people, especially um, people with higher skills and education, benefit enormously from this. Wages have risen, income has gone up. Um, and, you know, I think one of the statistics that maybe is questionable, but um, I just read a paper about um, the, in using labor market data from the UK, um, local labor markets, I think it's from 2009 to 2015, and they found that for every 10 sort of high-tech jobs, so STEM-intensive, technology-related jobs, um, the digital economy, they found that um, seven local um, non-tradable jobs, so um, not easily um, able to be um, sent to another country, um, and six of those went to low-skill workers. So they actually found an increase in sort of low-skill jobs. Um, depends on what figure you look at and things like that. But, um, you know, there is, there are a lot of sort of low-wage, low-skill jobs out there. Um, but, you know, the jobs are often poorly paid, service work, and they see average wages fall. Um, even when wages increase, we have a context, you know, the context is we have like, large increases in the cost of housing, health care, child care, which offset, um, largely offset any gains in wages. So there, you know, there are middle skill workers um, being displaced from fairly well-paying, um, stable, secure manufacturing jobs. Um, in the future, more and more people um, we, who fall into this category could face similar circumstances. We've talked, you know, there's a lot of talk about truck drivers and it's a fairly well-paying job and um, what happens, you know, you know, they either left to retrain and pursue further education or fill a low-skill job, uh, many of which really don't pay enough to um, offer any sort of economic security. It is possible to work full-time um, in this country and still like have an income at or below the poverty line. So the problem of economic insecurity um, isn't just a problem of the future 
um, for with, if and when mass automation leads to mass job losses. Um, and so far, you know, this has been going on, these trends you know, we've seen you know, for decades, but so far we've resisted uh, making any significant policy changes. I know there is some skepticism about whether the technology, technological advancements will actually materialize as predicted. No one wants to think that their job or their task can be automated. And a lot of the discourse around the future of work um, is focused on that long-run disruption. You know, what, what happens if you know, there are only jobs for a fraction of the population? Um, but when I think of basic income in that context, it's actually problematic um, for reasons many people have brought up during this conference. Work as a vehicle for economic self-sufficiency, self-actualization, and structure, both our daily schedule and structure over the course of the lifespan, is deeply interwoven into the social and cultural fabric of our society. Even if work doesn't provide some or all of those things for many people, um, society tells us that it should. And when it doesn't, it tends to be more of our fault and that leads to a lot of um, psychological um, challenges. So, you know, as Michael Caine discussed yesterday and also um, Joe mentioned with Wally, um, you know, both long-term, you know, the experiences of those who have been long-term unemployed um, don't pay, don't pay the, or um, forced unemployment, um, don't paint a great picture of life without work. So if economic security is to be partially or even completely decoupled from e employment, um, our social expectations and norms are gonna have to change as well. But what I wanna focus on is more of the short term. So historically, we have weathered um, what Keynes um, referred to as the painfulness of readjustment between one economic uh, period and another. Um, the most dire predictions um, during the agricultural and industrial revolutions weren't necessarily borne out, and the advancements have made us um, much better off as a whole. So in a more optimistic uh, view of the long run, uh, jobs you know, don't go away. They evolve, they change. Um, you know, the labor market might not be able to provide enough jobs that allow people to support themselves. It doesn't today, um, that's already, already here. Um, and so economic security may have to be, you know, partially um, decoupled from paid employment. But work can be defined more broadly um, and undertaken um, more for its subjective value. Um, I, as an aside, I think the best job that I ever had, <laughs> um, I was a full-time volunteer for three years. Um, I made $65 a month <laughs> um, and would really still be in that job um, if it had a pension plan or if I was able to save on that $65. <laughs> um, you know, I think, uh, you never know exactly what would happen. Um, but I think during, during these previous short-term disruptions and these shifts, it is important to note that um, while on the whole we, we um, emerged better off, um, you know, not everyone emerged unscathed, um, and you know, many um, groups and individuals were left out, um, you know, systematically even of the post-war boom, and um, Betsy did talked yesterday about sort of the development of this underclass. Um, and, you know, the share that could be left behind this time could be even larger. So I think the question is how do we deal, the more immediate question is how do we deal with this short run um, disruption? And so to think about this, um, I wanna turn to sort of the ubiquitous uh, qu uh, quadrant module, um, just as a thought exercise. So on the x-axis, um, we have the pace of technological um, 
change, or it could be more accurately like the adoption of change. So, um, and then you know whether it's slow or fast. And on the y-axis, we'll have sort of the degree of shared prosperity um, from low to high. Um, and uh, just a big disclaimer to start off: um, this model's highly stylized and very simplified, and there are a lot of assumptions banked in. But my goal really is to get us to step back and um, not think about specific policies first, um, but about a vision for weathering those um, short-term disruptions. So in, in the lower left quadrant, um, we have what could be, if all the assumptions hold, the status quo. Um, you know, either the technological advancements aren't realized as soon as people predict, or you know, we can you know, add regulations that will sort of impede the adoption of these and limit the adoption to protect existing jobs um, to limit the number that's eliminated. You know, with that, we don't see the reduction in the cost of goods, the you know, increased efficiency that um, we could see with the technology, but you have fewer jobs lost. But at the same time, our social safety net is inadequate. Um, it leaves more and more people in poverty. And you know, the ongoing decreases in the quality and security of jobs, absent you know, adequate regulations, will further erode um, the middle class. And you know, long run, with fewer people able to afford the goods and services we're producing, we could see um, a growth, economic growth slow. Um, at the same time, inequality will continue to grow if um, we don't do any, you know, make any changes. And so economic mobility will decrease. Um, as Betsy noted yesterday, um, you know, a portion of that decrease in intergenerational mobility is due to slowing growth. And so absence of any change, we would expect to see that trend continue um, and maybe even you know, increase. So then on the lower right quadrant, um, we have maybe the maximum disruption and sort of welfare losses that um, many people are left behind, sort of the, more of the dystopian um, vision for some. So we could see these widespread adoption of technological advancements could lead to mass manual labor and professional job losses. This is, all, this is at the extreme. Um, you know, governments, you know, if we don't you know, make any changes in policy, we don't adopt a new safety net. Um, we are ensuring that the benefits of economic growth are captured by a small portion of the population. Um, and one of the things that I've learned from being tangentially connected to OpenAI is that the resources involved and necessary, the startup costs, the barriers to entry are so high. I mean, the amount of money that is spent on just computing power, much less paying people and everything else, is like astronomical. And so, you know, I think with as this becomes sort of the technology of the future, you're going to see increasingly like concentrated, you know, in just few companies, and that you know that that um, concentration of wealth and income is going to really increase. Um, economic growth can be fueled by these technological advancements and generate enormous wealth, but uh, again, if fewer people are able to afford those goods and services, um, you know, who's going to buy them and what's going to happen in the long run? Um, jobs change. Um, as we you know, talked about, there will be new, new sectors of the economy we can't even imagine yet. Um, but, you know, retraining is limited to those who can afford it. Um, when I was a grad student at Michigan, I worked um, on the development of um, Governor Granholm's No Worker Left Behind program. And I got to work on it like, sort of the very early stages and think about what it was, was she wanted to offer two years um, free community college tuition to any displaced worker um, if they would train, retrain for employment or education in an in-demand field. So I set about, you know, 
trying to figure out, okay, all the supports that people would need and how to make this maximally successful. And, you know, came up with a long list of recommendations, none of which were ever adopted. Um, they did just do the straight two years um, free community college tuition. And, you know, it was cut short when she left office. So evaluations of it, like rigorous evaluations of it are really sketchy. I can't, I've not been able to see much. But, I mean, anecdotally and based on surveys, you saw that it was really difficult. I mean, people, you know, couldn't, they had to work multiple jobs to support their families. You know, taking time off to go back to school, even though it was free, um, was really difficult. So people who, the people who benefited um, tended to be better off and also were, you know, there wasn't a lot of remedial support. So they, um, you know, people have been like long out of school. And so it was, you know, people who are better prepared anyway um, were the ones that tend to benefit. So, I mean, even if we do put in sort of, you know, have great retraining opportunities, they're not necessarily going to be equitably um, distributed and available to all. Um, and, you know, as this sort of situation could further, you know, create more divisions in our society and threaten institutions, um, as Betsy talked about yesterday. So then, you know, in the upper left quadrant, um, this, we could sort of say, the government gets more involved in sort of redistributing um, income. So if, if growth or if um, the adoption is fairly slow, um, we either because the technology doesn't develop or, or regulation, um, we, there's a limit to the number of jobs eliminated. Um, but then there are additional policies that can improve um, the, quali the quality and the security of existing um, low wage and contract jobs. And they can you know, provide um, retraining opportunities, so fewer people are left behind in that way. Um, we could expect maybe that today's pace of economic growth continues, maybe stagnates. Um, we don't get that, you know, that massive benefit from um, technology, and government um, takes a more active role in redistributing resources to reduce inequality. And then finally, um, we have sort of the short-run utopian vision, I think. Um, so we're at the adoption of these rapid technological advancements bring down the cost of living and provide unprecedented access to goods and services. Um, economic growth is fueled by technological advancements. Um, we generate this enormous wealth, um, but governments and civil society ensure that those gains um, benefit all citizens by building some sort of new social safety net or new mechanism for redistribution. Um, Jobs change, but the availability of, of education and retraining and, you know, coupled with security provided by the safety net or some form of redistribution allows more and more people to be brought along to flourish. So that seems like um, where we want to be, but um, there isn't really a clear policy path roadmap for how to get there. So basic income is one um, policy option that has been proposed as a way of building a new safety net um, and re redistributing the gains from um, technological advancement. You know, interest in basic income has skyrocketed um, lately and, you know, many have expressed very strong opinions for and against it. Um, but the debate often relies heavily on conjecture, stereotypes, and out-of-date studies. We have very little evidence um, for how a basic income would work in the U.S. in the 21st century. And moreover, it's not a singular policy prescription. Um, there are so many ways it could be structured and paid for. I mean, you talk about a wealth tax, a sovereign wealth fund, you know, an income tax. All of those decisions would have, could have an enormous effect um, on the incentive structures and then the outcomes. So it's not just one 
idea. So we're going to conduct an experiment. Um, I want to note at the outset that you know, one study can't even begin to answer all the questions that we have about basic income. And a small pilot you know, cannot simulate a long-term policy change. Um, in many ways, it's a first step. Um, we've designed the study to explore questions relevant to a wide range of potential policies um, to maximize its usefulness to academics, policymakers. Um, it's really, it is in many ways an exploratory study. Um, and I guess one of the first reactions I get is, why bother? Why spend the money? You know, nothing's going to change. Um, you know, we're not there yet. Um, it's not going to happen. And I think the reason that we're undertaking this now, um, at a time when you know transformative policy change does not look imminent, um, is to be proactive. Um, so many policies and social programs um, are much more reactive. Um, they you know, don't address a problem until many people's lives have been upended, and then it's more of a Band-Aid than a sustainable um, solution and a sustainable response to the problem. And basic income is not um, a silver bullet. You know, we want to learn about the conditions under which it is helpful and for whom. Um, we have an opportunity to, you know, develop a vision for the future and to experiment um, so that future policies are based on evidence. Um, we can innovate, test, and scale. And, you know, hopefully we can identify some of those unintended consequences um, and, you know, ineffectiveness to either sort of retool or have ideas to inform a policy or say, you know, we need to go in a different direction. You know, whether or not basic income is um, a viable solution, we hope that the study will offer valuable insight um, that can be effective, you know, to figure out what will be effective in the long run. So briefly, um, we talk about basic income. There's a lot of talk, uh, and many of the benefits that people cite. Um, one is, you know, you could just by giving, by setting an income floor, a guaranteed income, you could, you know, eradicate poverty, poverty as it's currently defined. Um, you can um, foster growth by promoting investments in human capital and increasing purchasing power. Um, you can spark entrepreneurship. Um, people are able to, I mean, I think YC talks is basically a basic income in some ways. They give you $12,500, allowing you to quit your job and start thinking about your company. Not everyone has this idea, as I constantly tell them I'm one of the more risk-averse people on the planet and would never do that, but, you know, it could create that opportunity. And, you know, it gives people the freedom to define their lives. I mean, people are trapped um, often in a cycle of low-wage work. Um, there's a book uh, by Jennifer Silva who looks at sort of um, working-class young adults, and many of whom actually went to college, but you see they're just sort of trapped in this, you know, they had to take the first low-wage job that was out there because they didn't have, you know, the, the resources. You know, they couldn't move home. Their parents couldn't support them while they figured out what they wanted to do. And so the need to pay today's rent meant that they took the first job available. They're sort of on this cycle. They're not using their, you know, college degree. They have these enormous loans. Um, so how do we sort of give people more freedom um, to define their lives? Um, it gives people more opportunity, it could give people more opportunity for civil, um, civic and social engagement, um, give, create time to volunteer in your communities. If you work a little bit less, if you have some of that stress relieved so that you can actually think about, you know, what you might want to be doing with your time. And it could um, reduce the complexity of the social assistance programs. So the question for us was, um, 
how do you t d like design a study that could begin to even test some of um, whether these you know these impacts are actually realized and one of the things that we were at really interested in, in at first in the beginning is a very taking on a very holistic study so if you look back at the negative income tax experiments um, and other sort of basic income like studies the focus has really been on sort of um, the labor market response and these very economic um, responses um, very economic outcomes and we want to take a, a much more holistic approach to people's lives I think it's been one of the interesting things during the conference as we've talked about work as that affects different dimensions of our lives and I think um, that's one of the things we want to explore in the study um, and so to start with we put together um, a, a really amazing team of um, pr primary investigators and um, advisors um, our team of primary investigators are all junior faculty. Um, they're, it's been wonderful to work with them. We have weekly calls. Uh, we have, you know, academic advisors that very esteemed, you know, from many disciplines, um, from both academia, from think tanks. Um, it's a really great group, and um, they've been very helpful. And I think, you know, together we've sort of crafted this this um, research design, which we're actually implementing as we speak. I've actually been running out. Uh, we've got 40 interviewers in the field enrolling people um, and so some questions have come up but um, we're implementing it now and I think you know it is an interesting model um, my first question in my interview was you know why don't you give the money to an academic you know or an, an existing institution that's set up you know to run studies like this um, and you know the answer was we want to try a different model um, it is somewhat of a hybrid you know we, we go through uh, institutional review board we have you know strong ties to academia um, but we are you know very independent and um, to Sam and the funders credit is they've sort of said here like you design the study it had complete and total independence um, with you know our partners to you know develop this um, we're able to I, I've talked one of the, my first weeks on the job I actually talked with um, some of the people that were involved in um, designing the negative income tax studies in the US in the um, 60s and 70s and one of the things they said is you know there were like 26 different groups all trying to get their survey questions in and there was disagreements about what's going to be in the what, what the focus is what the research questions are um, that also came up a lot um, when I talked with people working on the study in Canada that eventually got canceled for political reasons and in Finland and so the opportunity to sort of be insulated from that um, and to be able to craft what we hope is sort of a unified um, study that actually is designed to answer some of the questions we're asking we hope um, is, is, is really unique um, there have been challenges uh, doing it outside of government we had to pass that law as we mentioned um, so you know there are pros and cons to the model so uh, sort of what we've been under uh, it's taken a while <laughs> it's really actually a lot more complicated than you might think to give away money <laughs> um, so we started with just you know a very small enough six feasibility study that ran for a year um, we gave away without like I think the res people received fifteen hundred dollars a month for a year and really this was just to begin to test out you know how do we deliver payments um, the people were amazing you know we talked a lot of inter um, especially after the fact talking through you know what were some of the challenges for them what are some of those unintended consequences how do we mitigate those um, in the study and and moving forward um, we then took all that back um, and started you know, working on developing 
um, this sort of research instruments and um, the protocol for the study. Then we did another um, operational pilot um, where, so the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan is um, involved in helping enroll people. So they actually piloted this out. We um, received, people received much smaller amounts of money, but we had, you know, 100 people over a longer period of time to check out test instruments, check response rates to surveys and things like that. And um, this main study, which I'm going to talk about, is um, being launched um, this year. So it is a randomized controlled trial um, being conducted in two different states. Um, there'll be 3,000 participants, active participants. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next slide. Um, the treatment group will receive $1,000 per month for three years. And um, we're limiting it to in ages, individuals ages 21 to 40. Um, partly because we expect that a basic income or these unconditional cash transfers would have a um, different effect across the life cycle. And we don't have unlimited funds, and in order to, you know, we had to make some decisions about where to focus. And so we look, focused on age, and then we also um, put an income cap um, at where household income doesn't ex exceed 300% of the federal poverty level um, for their household size. And, you know, we are, we have sort of stratification targets to ensure that our sample is representative um, racially, with gender, um, you know, within that. So we have like 0 to 100 percent of the federal poverty level, 100 to 200, and 200 to 300. So we have distribution across that. And then once we um, are actually doing random assignment to treatment control, we'll do balance checks on a number of um, using baseline survey data. Um, to make sure that you know we don't have all the unemployed people in you know the treatment group, for example, um, and all the people with children and you know massive amounts of debt. So we we will be doing some of those and re-randomizing if necessary. And I think one of the um, more unique things that we're trying to do is because you know we'll be interacting with people. Even the control group receives um, fifty dollars a month, and so you know, that is, they're interacting with us, they receive a small amount of money. So how do, we wanted to create a larger control group um, that doesn't ever receive any interaction to see if that $50 and, and that, you know, how, what the effect of that is. And so we're trying to re recruit random sample of 10,000 eligible people, so who respond to our recruitment, um, you know, random for, to random addresses, agree to participate, um, and then the first stage of randomization will be um, 7,000 will be into the administrative data control group. Um, so we ask permission for um, to access their admin data, which I'll talk uh, more about a little bit later. And then we never, you know, interact with them again. And then 3,000 people will be randomized into the um, the active participation, the program as we're calling it. So then, you know, we attempt enrollment baseline survey. After that entire, it actually takes going to take about eight to nine months to enroll 3,000 people. Um, then we'll do the second randomization into the treatment and control group, and then at that point, the larger, the, the different payments will start. And you know, I think we're really actively trying to um, take a mixed method approach to this study. So we do have, you know, it is, you know, it's hard, uh, you know, quantitative RCT looking at, you know, what happens when individuals receive $1,000 a month for three years. So we have, you know, defined narrow research questions, specific measurable outcomes, 
Um, we have this large sample um, to hopefully be powered to detect effects. Um, this data sources for this are surveys, um, administrative data, and for consenting individuals, well, uh, financial transaction data, which I'll also talk about. But then, you know, that sort of shows correlations um, between receiving this money and these outcomes, but we really want to understand um, not only that, but the mechanisms, like what's underlying those effects, um, what's really going on, um, because in many ways this is an exploratory study, and we might learn more um, from the qualitative than we do from the quantitative. We're upfront about that. So there'll be a subsample of 200 people that will be followed much more intensively um, over the time period, two in-person, um, you know, open-ended interviews a year. Um, here we can look more at, you know, these, um, you know, the broad questions, the mechanisms of impact, um, and the constraints and challenges people face. And we can also use those interviews to, as if, you know, it'll be a sort of an iterative approach. So as we get data back from each wave of um, data collection um, in the quantitative, if we see patterns that are confusing, we can try to, you know, structure our instruments to try to understand what's going on there. So in terms of how, what kind of data we're using, um, there's a mixture of sort of active and passive data. So this, we'll be doing three um, in-person uh, surveys um, during the course of the study. So one at baseline, um, one at midline, and one at inline. Each one's about 45 minutes long. Um, we have, you know, we're not doing, you know, a lot of um, biometrics, but we are just, you know, measuring um, height, weight, and blood pressure as indicators of future disease. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of focus on the scarcity hypothesis, how having um, scarcity of whether it's time or money um, leads to short-sighted decisions. And um, so one of the things we are measuring, cognitive function, I don't really love that term. It's more sort of inhi inhibitory control and attention. Um, so we do have those sort of tasks to see if, to try to get at sort of bandwidth um, to see, you know, if people are able to, um, you know, better have a little bit more bandwidth to think about the future and plan for the future. And, you know, there's questions about, you know, do these tests actually measure that? But we're going to measure it anyway. Um, we also, we really want to collect um, more granular data. So we have these short, and we didn't know if it was possible, but it worked really well in the pilot. We had response rates of about 90% over the course of a year. So we have very short, about 10-minute uh, monthly um, web-based, we use Qualtrics surveys, just kind of check in. Um, talk a bit more about them in a second. And we also have a mobile app that was created um, to, you know, with a couple of small activities. So monthly surveys, we're, you know, trying to get at data that, or outcomes that, you know, change a lot more frequently, so we have repeated measures of. And, you know, I think a lot of the existing sort of large-scale survey um, data on things like labor market, like, you know, employment, consumption, it's all based on this, like, you know, once a year, you know, how much did you spend on this a month last year, or like how many jobs did you have? And it's very, it doesn't really, we've found capture sort of the nuance of people's lives now. And so we really want to try to document that um, during the study. So we have these um, monthly surveys, and we wanted to measure, I'll talk about the outcomes in just a second, but one of the things is time use. And so we had this app created where, you know, people for a day or two a month, they can sort of drag and drop um, to try to, make it less onerous, onerous than some of the ways, the time diaries that exist. Um, we also have, you know, this, the strip 
test, which measures sort of inhibitory control and attention, and some of the time and risk preferences or activities that people can, can do in the app. And then, you know, we have a lot of data that we're collecting passively. So if response rates plummet, <laughs> um, we will still have um, data on a lot of outcomes. Um, the circles sort of have the different types of admin data that we hope to collect. Um, you know, our university partners have data sharing agreements um, in some cases, and others we're still working on it. But, you know, that could be, you know, credit bureaus for financial data, you know, participation in um, other public benefit programs, um, you know, births, deaths, um, education records, um, looking at things like attendance, um, test scores, uh, disciplinary action. And this financial transaction data. So if people do consent to share transactions, um, we can, it doesn't show what they purchase, but, you know, through sort of a massive big data set, sort of analyze general consumption um, patterns. So what are we trying to measure? The short answer is everything. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like once in a, you know, I think, you know, we're giving away um, about $49 million, um, of, you know, to directly to individuals. So we want to get as much out of it as we can. Um, so one of the, you know, I'll go through them fairly quickly. I, I will note that we are um, soon, they're almost done, we'll be posting our pre-analysis plans. So we'll have it sort of in-depth about um, how we're, you know, the metrics we're using and how we're collecting the data. But I think one of the things we're looking at is subjective and psychological well-being, um, sort of satisfaction, affect, self-determination, um, interpersonal relationships and social support, um, and social integration. Also material well-being, so housing and neighborhood quality. Um, are people able to, you know, move to a different neighborhood or you know, dwelling that offers more space or less noise? Uh, material hardship, um, food security, um, and nutrition. We're doing some nutrition diaries. And transportation security, which is not necessarily the biggest issue in, you know, in inner city, but we are also sampling in suburban and rural areas as well. Health um, is another, so both physical and uh, mental health. So um, you know, we're looking at, as I said, like with, we looked at sort of the Oregon Medicaid study and other studies um, that have looked at um, health. And with this younger group and our sample size, we're unlikely to see you know, significant differences in sort of health outcomes. Um, so we're really trying to look at some of the, the inputs um, that may be indicators of future health outcomes. So um, you know, healthcare access, preventative care utilization, Stress is a big one. Um, healthy and slash unhealthy behaviors, um, you know, health investments, exercise, sleep, as well as sort of self-reported uh, health and mental health. And I think one thing is we talk about the expense, and I'm really going, this is a very much of a micro-level study, and I'm not talking about sort of the, the macro effects, but I think, you know, you could, a lot of, one of the things that they found in the Canadian negative income tax studies is that the healthcare costs went way down. I mean, there were fewer injuries, fewer hospitalizations. And so when we talk about the cost of a program like this, um, looking at where might be savings, and so I think that's one of the things we're also trying to, to um, gather data on. And financial health, so income, um, of the other income and income volatility, um, consumption and expenditures, savings, investments. I think one of the most difficult um, things about this um, measuring those is that 
whether it goes up or down, you know, people could save more and that's great. You know, they're saving. Savings could also go down because they made a productive investment. So a lot of the, on some of these outcomes, I mean, you could sort of see a null result and that's, and we don't, you know, it could be judged. So really understanding what's happening with the qualitative and even with the way that we've structured our survey questions. And we're hoping to get at some of that. Um, financial behavior, you know, does this allow people to not have to resort to payday loans or other costly financial products? And um, financial health and, and resilience, I think, is a big one. Um, we, you know, if we give people money, more money, you know, they're going to have more money. But um, I think the question is, you know, it's like, was it half of Americans can't de um, meet, deal with a $400 like emergency un unexpected expense. And so are people better able to cope with economic shocks um, like healthcare emergencies without having to file for bankruptcy or you know, just completely upending their financial lives? I think time use is a big one and it sort of encapsulates a lot of <laughs> what we've been talking about and a lot of the other sort of types of outcomes. Um, so labor market participation is one, um, you know, do people work less? I think one of the big criticisms of other studies and what we can't get at is we are only seeing sort of the supply of labor. We don't know what would happen. We can't measure the demand side. We're also doing a geographically dispersed sample. So, you know, it was not a lot we can get at, but we will look at, you know, not only do people work more or less, but, you know, they work different jobs. Do they take a, maybe a lower paying job that they find more meaningful, that, that type of thing. Um, so any, any type of education or training, it doesn't have to be like a formal program, but you know, are people working to gain new skills? Um, certainly child care, elder care, are parents able to spend more time with kids? Um, civic engagement and volunteering, um, and leisure. And those are just some of the categories, but. And then uh, again, I've sort of touched on this, but some of the employment outcomes um, in terms of number and type of jobs, hours worked, um, like the stability of those jobs and, and of the income, job quality and satisfaction, and um, meaning in work. So we're using the work as, work as meaning inventory um, and really trying to understand people's relationship to their job um, and does, are there correlations between that and job changes and other things like that, um, as well as sort of entrepreneurial orientation, um, activity, and intention. And then looking some at this, these decision-making outcomes, these time and risk preferences. So um, as I mentioned before, inhibitory control and attention, trying to you know, get at the scarcity hypothesis. Um, time preferences, like present bias, um, like risk preferences, um, those type of outcomes. And um, for child outcomes, I think right now, based on about half of our very small portion of the sample, about half of them have children, and they're not all the same age, so we're not going to be powered to, you know, d say much about these massive child outcomes, but we are going to collect information on sort of the home environment, you know, parental involvement, um, non-parental care, um, and educational outcomes, um, as well as health of children. And then there's some sort of other, I just kind of stuck in, um, looking at mobility. I mean, I think one of the, um, our a lot of proponents of basic income talk about the ability to um, say, you know, I, you know, I'm in San Francisco or I'm in the Bay Area because my job is there, but like, you know, it takes all my entire income just to afford rent and, you know, my family's really far away and I would rather, you know, give, if given the opportunity, you know, I would rather not do that. So would this, would basic income allow people to move? In a short-term study, unlikely, you know, we don't know if we'll see that, but as I'll talk about in briefly a case study from a pilot, we did see that. Um, even with a one-year study. 
so then there's um, David Brockman um, as a political scientist on our team, and he's looking a lot at p political participation and engagement, um, as well as sort of so these social and political attitudes about work, um, views of redistribution, um, other regarding preferences, and things like that. Okay, so I, I want to close by just talking, it's totally anecdotal. Again, we had an N of six for this, but just two stories from um, our feasibility study um, that illustrate sort of the, the breadth of the effects of, potential effects of basic income. So Brianna, um, at the time when we enrolled her, she was working a part-time seasonal job in Oakland. Um, she was kind of couch surfing, um, staying with family. Um, and, you know, a couple months after she started receiving the basic income, she was able to uh, move move um, to a sort of a distant suburb where the cost of living is lower. Um, she got an apartment. Um, she was able to use the proof that she was going to receive this for the next year um, to, help, to help her sign on a lease. Um, she got a full-time uh, nine-to-five job. Um, like just that sort of income gave her the stability she needed um, to sort of reevaluate and, and take steps to, to do that. She also... Um, this, in this place where she moved, um, some of her, like her brother um, and his children lived there, and she was able to spend a lot of time caring for them and also invest in some of their um, food and clothing and help out. And then on the, you know, the other side, we had, um, what are we calling her again? Irene. Um, she was a, a student, and she came from a low-income background. Um, she didn't have, you know, any family support. She was working multiple um, part-time jobs just, to, you know, to work through school. And she was able to quit some of those um, and focus more on her school work, which was great. But she also um, started a band. She pursued some other, um, she's very busy, uh, but started, pursued some other artistic endeavors. Um, she volunteered for local government and she is in the Bay Area. She began, became involved in the activist community. Um, and, and she said that at first, you know, she, we said, talking about it, you know, how did this affect you? And she was kind of like, well, I don't know. And then she sort of stepped back and she's like, actually, you know, it just gave her a whole new outlook. Um, um, and it actually changed what she plans to do in the future. And I do not think that this is going to be transformative in that way <laughs> for most people. And I think tempering expectations, I think people assume, you know, think 12000 a year is a ton of money. And it is, but, you know, it's the cost of a decent used car, too. It's not, um, you know, it's not going to allow you to just quit your job and lay around and do nothing. It's a supplement. Um, and for some people, just, you know, just the ability to pay your bills, but, um, just know you can pay your bills this month and have that stability, you know, that sort of reduction in stress or whatever, whatever that creates, whatever op that opens up, um, over time could really build up. Um, we might not see it in the study, um, but we want to try. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.